for those who are, have not been in my class, which is the majority of you, but that's okay. You get stuck with me this week. Um, Carrie, is that, is that monitor on? The piano monitor? Or is it just... Okay, thank you. Uh, we've, been, we've been taking this class uh, to look at and say, okay, what does the Bible teach about covenants? And in our, our circles of churches, oftentimes we, we have shied away from talking about covenants because it gets into some sometimes theological little struggles or different things. And, and I have found personally, I mentioned to my class, that this is a topic that for years I've just avoided because... Uh, wasn't sure how to deal with it, sure how to wrestle through some of the different areas. And, uh, but got to be honest, I have really, really enjoyed the opportunity to study these ideas of what are the covenants and what does the Bible teach about a covenant and what, what is a covenant and how does it work? So in our class, we've, we've been working through and we're, we're now into the Noahic covenant, going to deal with a little bit of Noah. We won't get through all of it today. And some of you are looking on three pages of notes uh, because it is a, a Bible Institute class, which I'd encourage you to take some time. They're a lot of fun, and we, we get into a lot of different areas. And uh, it's not always as deep as you might think, so it's, but it's good topics to cover. Uh, we're, we're at that point. So I give a little bit more in the notes than just, uh, just some quick blanks to fill out. If you don't get them all, that's fine, and you want blanks later. But I think they're mostly up on the screen. The question will often come is, what is, what is a covenant? When the Bible talks about a covenant... And when we look at the idea of a covenant, a covenant is this. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Now, when we view the idea of the covenant, and we often view ancient covenants with our modern view of contracts, and this will be a little bit of review for some in my class, but it's, it's, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. When, we, when you go back and you look at the Bible covenants, they are not, they are not okay, Abraham and God sitting down, coming to, coming to an agreement, signing on the bottom of a dotted line, and, and making a contract like we would think. There, there is a difference. In, in a contract, two parties are involved to make a transaction. There's investments. There's guarantees that are going to be made. They're going to be made in front of witnesses. When we talk about a covenant, it's a relationship that, that has been established or will be established in which promises are going to be made, stipulations are going to be given, and witnesses are going to be aware, but there's going to be blessings and cursings that arise with following through or not following through on the covenants. So let's, let's take a moment and let's just look at the differences for, for a second quickly between a covenant and a contract. When we talk about a contract, signing on the dotted line, a contract <clears throat> is impersonal and it's, it's non-relational. Now, now understand, yes, there is a relationship in the sense of you enter into a contract with, you know, uh, uh, we, we've been using Home Depot because Bob's in the class. So I, I need new windows. I enter into a contract with Home Depot. Yes, there's a relationship with the guy who comes to my house to put in the windows. I talk with them. I say hi, make sure things are done well. But there's not, a, there's not a deep bonding, genuine relationship. It's rather impersonal. They come, they do the job. If they do the job satisfactorily, they get paid. It's, uh, there's, there's expected benefits from both parties. You expect, I expect new windows to be put in my house and they expect to be paid. So there's a benefit to them, there's a benefit to me, and, and we both sort of expect those things to happen. 
And a contract is just, it's a mutual agreement. We both look and we're going to say, okay, hey, this is, this is what we want. This is what we expect. And, and it's going to happen. In fact, to get to that agreement, there's often negotiations. Well, I don't want to pay that much for my windows. You know, Lowe's says they can do it cheaper. Can you do any better? Well, we can knock off 10% here and we can maybe do this. And we'll, we'll work through a negotiation. So that's how when we're going through contracts, we're, we're going to work through these areas. And it's performance-oriented. If they don't do a good job, I'm not going to pay them until it's, it's done to my satisfaction. And if I don't pay them and they've done a satisfactory job, they're going to come after me and expect, expect payment from me because that's my, my responsibility. And there's often a specified termination point. It's, this is going to be when it is done by. You're going to do the job. You're going to have it accomplished by this. Or we're going to come into, you're going to pay off this car loan by this date. This is a contract you enter into with the bank for your house that in 30 years you're going to pay this off or 20 or whatever your mortgage is but there is an end to that to that negotiation to that that contract that you make so when we look at when we look at bible covenants we don't want to come with that modern concept because that is not how covenants were were intended or made during during biblical times in fact when we look at the idea of covenants going down the right hand of that that table there a covenant is very much relationship-based. There is either a relationship that has already been established or through the treaty or a pact that is made between uh, maybe nations or governing agents. There's a, there's a relationship that, that is built. It is expected that this relationship will be from both parties. Not that it's going to be impersonal, but rather there is a personal dynamic to it. When Jacob and Joseph make a covenant with each other, there is a personal relationship. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, it's not that I'm going to stand far off Abraham and just do my thing, or you're just going to do your thing, but there is a, there is a relationship between God and his people, or between both parties. It is expected that there is mutual benefit and mutual building up in, in the party. The stronger party in biblical covenants often initiates the uh the covenant it's not the it's not the weaker party or the lesser party coming and saying this is what i want this is what i expect but oftentimes especially when we look at the major biblical covenants between noah and abraham and david and uh, moses and the new covenant in in scriptures it's not us going or those men going to god and saying god this is what we expect or we want from you it is God, the stronger party, coming to them and saying, this is what I'm going to, to do for you. So God, the stronger party, initiates uh, the, the movement. We talked about, there's two different, two different in the Bible, in Bible times, excuse me, the ancient Near East. There's two different types of uh, uh, covenants that were, were very popular during that time. And it's, you know, I, I know the word suzerain vassal looks really, really weird and all. But the idea is, if you think back to medieval times, and there's the, there's the king who, you know, Arthur has Camelot. And he has, he has the beautiful city and everything is there. And he is king. And all the people around him, they, he's going to say, I will offer you protection. I will offer, I will guarantee safety. I will guarantee provisions. But in, in return, I'm asking, I'm expecting your loyalty to me as king. And so what that is, is that's what the idea of the suzerain-vassal treaty is. The suzerain is the idea of the, the, main, the main king, the dominant king. He is looking at his vassals, 
his, the, the subjects, and they are there swearing allegiance and loyalty to him, and in return, he is going to provide for them. It is, it is uh, when, we look at, when we look at the Old Testament covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the, or the, the law, the book of Deuteronomy actually lays itself out very similar to old biblical styles of what's called the suzerain vassal treaty, where God looks and says to the people of Israel, this is what I will do. There will be blessings. There will be good things that will happen. There will be prosperity in the land. There, there will be all these things. But in return, I expect from you loyalty. I expect obedience. I expect you to follow the law. And so he establishes that treaty, that covenant with the people. The other one is the idea of the land grant. It is the king who is looking, or the powerful, the sovereign entity. They look at the individual and say, because of what you've done for me, because of who you are, or a quality that you have in your life, or something that you have demonstrated, I am going to grant you this land. Or I'm going to grant you a position of power and authority. And so the the sovereign, the, the one in charge, grants to them, gives to them, a position or a land. Now in doing that, if I, if I granted to Scott over here, I grant Scott the whole area over here because thankfully he plays the trump and he does that. And he does a great job. So he gets this section. And I, as, as the, the sovereign, give him that section. That is his. Now it is his. But let's say, let's say Bob says, you know what? I, I really want that section over there. That's my section now. I want to move. I know you would ha- you'd have to move from your spot, but you know, Bob says, I, I'm going to go do that. So Bob mounts this whole section, and we're gonna, you guys are going to go to battle against Scott because you want this section. My guarantee to Scott, because I have granted that to him as sovereign, is that I will go to defend, I will protect him from you because I have given him this land, and I will, I will guarantee that to, to the, the, the degree that I can. And so the, the one in charge guarantees and provides the safety and the protection. The, the Noahic covenant, when we look at that to a little bit today, is that type of grant. God is going to look at Noah, and based on what he's going to do, and based on humanity, he's going to grant to Noah a position, an ability to go through, and uh, provide protection, protection for him. So the stronger party initiates in the covenant. It is a gift, and it's often person-oriented. A covenant is not just about material things, but it's like, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I'm going to grant uh, to you. And it's very much loyalty-oriented, whether it's the, the, the subject or the sovereign. Both are going to have positions of loyalty, which we'll talk about in a second here. And it's for, often for an indeterminate amount of time. It's not, the Mosaic Covenant didn't start... And, and Moses looked and goes, okay, guys, just so you know, everybody in Israel, this is a 30-year agreement with God. If we do this for 30 years, then we're going to, we're going to be good. But rather, it was they expected and they continued on. And the only, the only time that changes is if there's, there's a change in, we understand God, God is going to change some things where we're not under the Mosaic law anymore, but we're under the, the new covenant and the grace of God that, that occurs. But it's, it, you enter into a covenant, Abraham enters into a covenant, Noah enters in, Moses enters in for an indeterminate. They're just, they're looking in response to God and saying, we're going we're gonna to enter into this. In a contract, relationship is somewhat secondary. But in a, 
in a covenant, relationship is primary. So when you go to understanding the biblical covenants and you're reading through the covenants of the Bible, understand that the, the driving force is God in a relationship with people, in a relationship with, with mankind. There are, there are similarities. We, we understand that between contract and covenant, there's two parties, there's an agreement, there's often obligations. Uh, but, but they go through that. A contract really is, when you look at relationship and contract, a contract is you have a relationship for the sake of obligations. You're fulfilling those obligations. That's why we have the covenant, contract. But in a covenant, a covenant you have obligations for the sake of your relationships. And, and God establishes, and, and Moses or the Israelites or Noah or whoever it is or us, as we enter in, as you enter into, it's, it's why we call marriage Marriage is not a contract between a husband and a wife. Sadly, it's becoming that in an American society. You know, we, we lay out all the, all the agreements ahead of time. We set up the prenuptials and we set up who's going to get what in case this doesn't go well. But we'll try and work through it and we'll try and sign on the dotted line, so to speak, and, and make it happen. It is not a, it's not a contract. Marriage is a covenant of compatible companionship. As we find somebody that we have loved and we fall in love with, and we make the choice to enter into a covenant agreement with them, it is a relationship-based uh, covenant between, so between Sharon and I. We make that, we make that agreement. It's not, it's not, okay, I don't like you. You didn't hold up to your stipulation, so therefore I, I exit stage right. But rather, it's looking and saying, based on the relationship that we have and the, the covenant that we have made between, between us before God and man, we enter into this for an indeterminate amount of time till death do us part is, you know, pretty, pretty close as we can get. But uh, we, we go through that. And we look at marriage as something more sacred than just signing on the dotted line. It is a, it is a covenant between between a husband and a wife. To get a better idea of, of covenant, let's go over to Genesis 47 for a second. We'll look at, we're going we're gonna to skip around a little bit. Those in my class, you're going to laugh because I'm going to keep saying we're going to get to the Noahic covenant and we probably won't get to it all until next week, like I said last week and the week before that. But we will eventually get to the covenant of Noah and the other covenants that are, that are in there. Genesis 47, uh, down verse 29 and 30 there's a covenant that's going to be made between uh, Jacob and Joseph. This is after uh, the, J- they're, they're back to, they're in Egypt and Jacob is passing and he's going to talk to Joseph and he's going to ask Joseph to, to do something that to us, you, you sort of have to not read between the lines, but understand a little historical context. It says that the time and the time drew nigh that Israel must die. That's, that's Jacob. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in your sight, put, I pray thee, your hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. So when you look at it, you're like, okay, why, why are we putting a hand under the thigh? And there's a whole bunch of stuff. You want to get into the reading of all the euphemism that, that takes place there, go for it. But basically what is happening is Jacob is looking at Joseph and saying, make a covenant with me. Make an agreement with me that I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die, but you are not going to allow my body to continue and to remain forever in Egypt. You're going to take my body. You're going to take my bones, which we know later on 
Israel does when they exit the land. And you're going to, uh, later on, Joseph's going to do that, excuse me. He's going to take his son or his father and bury him outside of Egypt back in Canaan land. So he makes that, he makes that agreement. What happens here is, in this case, the stronger party, who is not Jacob, but the stronger party is Joseph at this point. Jacob is weak. He's frail. He's dying. And Joseph is going to obligate himself to help the weaker party. And that's often when we look at covenant, when we're understanding covenant and impacts. Again, we don't want to take our modern idea of contract. We go back to ancient biblical texts and ancient texts beyond. They are going to say, as the stronger, Joseph is going to say, I will do this. So he obligates himself. And there's a, the fulfillment of this, for Joseph to fulfill it, demonstrates his faithful his loyal love. He says, deal gracious. If, you, if I found grace in your sight, he says, deal kindly or faithfully and loyal. The, the ideas of kind and truly, we'll talk about that in a second here, is the idea of faithful, loyal. Your word is your bond and what you say you're going to do is going to, to be true. So when Joseph fulfills this action, he is demonstrating faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love toward his father. So when we go to understand biblical covenants, when we look at God making a covenant with people, you're going to see these words that are going to pop up very often. Faithful, kind, grace, loyalty, keeping, covenant-keeping. You're going to see some of those words depending on the translation that you have. And it really is looking and saying, as God fulfills his obligations, the ones that he has said he will do as the stronger party, it highlights who he is. It highlights his vast faithfulness for us, for the people that he is, he is caring for. These, these words that pop up, let's talk about them a little bit more in detail so that we, we can understand them as you go to your own personal Bible study, as you're reading through. And we just, oh, kindness, he must just be nice. Or loyal, he's a good friend. You know, there, there's more to these words. The, the first word that often comes up is this word loving kindness. It is a, it's a word uh, that we often refer to as hesed. Or uh, it's, it's used 248 times in the Old Testament alone. The word loving kindness or kindness sometimes uh, or faithfulness sometimes it's translated as. It's often referred to as steadfast loyal, grace, kindness. Back with Joseph here, if, if I have found, if I, if I found grace, if there is loving kindness in you, Joseph, Jacob is asking, if, I've, you're, if you are loyal to me, then take my bones and bury, bury it elsewhere. It focuses, this word focuses on give, the giving of a promise, which is foundational to, to the covenant. In other words, as God faithfully makes a promise to his people. As he says to Noah or to Abraham or to us, as he makes a statement, the faithfulness, the loving kindness of him to make that statement is grace. It is merciful. Noah, Noah does not, when it comes down to it, Noah deserves to be wiped out just with the rest of humanity. He, he, he's still a sinner. Noah is not perfect. And yet, God is going to graciously 
work, work through, working in, in and through Noah. It's directed not toward himself, okay? But as the sovereign, he directs his loving kindness, his grace, his loyalty toward those who are weaker. God is not a, a God who is just standing up there and, and is just going to just keep lauding it on himself, but rather he takes his power, he takes his abilities, he takes his kindness and his love, and he graciously lavishes them upon us so that as we are going through life, we can enjoy the goodness, the faithfulness, the, the love of our God. Another word that comes up is, is, again, the idea of faithfulness you'll see it translated as. So sometimes you'll see the one word is loyalty, as loving kindness. Sometimes you'll see the word faithfulness. It's the Hebrew word hemet. It's used 127 teams in the Old Testament. Okay, I'll have to fix, fix that right there because that is not spelled correctly. But, and if I did in your notes, sorry, I'll catch that later. Uh, it's often referred to as truth, faithfulness, firmness. What's interesting is it focuses on the reliability of God. When it says that, <clears throat> that, that God is true, or if you're going to, in Joseph, if you're going to deal truly with me, it's not just that he is truth, he doesn't tell a lie, or it's not just that God is truth. We can, we can quickly jump to that. But it, it celebrates the fact that he made a covenant and that he fulfills that he will fulfill his obligations. Go over to Exodus 34 for a second. Exodus 34, Moses, Moses is in the, they're in the process of he's going to be getting the, the covenant from God, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law. And part of, part of what he wants from, he, sort of a guarantee is like, well, God, how do we know who are you and, and how do we know this is going to be happening? And we're, we're going to see that, that God is going to He's going to say, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. But in 34, verse 6, uh, verse 10, he says, uh, God is going to say, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels. And, and he goes on. But, but look what's before. Moses asks, can I see you? Can I see? And he says, no, no one's going to be able to look at me, basically. We know that. And he says, but you stand behind this rock. I'm going to pass by. And he's going to talk to him. In verse 6, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. It's actually the only time in the Hebrew right there that Jehovah is back to back for emphasis. This is Jehovah. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. The word, the word truth here is not just this idea that, okay, he, he cannot tell a lie. God is more than just little George Washington, Okay. It is the idea that what he says is guaranteed. That when he makes a promise, that when he makes a covenant with people, it is guaranteed, not because he, he's just so great he can get it done, but because he is sovereign, because he is God, when he makes a statement, that statement will be fulfilled. That, that promise that is there is guaranteed by the God of the universe. And so this word, it focuses, focuses on that. In fact, go to, go to Psalm 117, shortest psalm in the Bible. And you will notice these words are just, when you're reading through the Old Testament especially, you're going to see that these ideas of faithful, true, loyal, uh, the the covenant aspect, the covenant-keeping God, who He is, uh, you're going to see Him scattered all over because Israel 
is understanding in a covenant dynamic that he is the God who is going to keep his promises. Psalm 117, the psalmist in the shortest psalm says, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people. Why should we praise? Why should they be giving God glory? For his merciful kindness, that's his hesed, the first word we looked at, is great toward us. And his emet, his truth of the Lord, endures forever. Why does the psalmist say that there should be praise to God? Because as he looks in the history of Israel, as he understands this concept of covenant, that God has entered into relationships with his people, and he has said that he will do things, and he has made promises and guarantees because he is faithful and loyal and he is true that what he says is guaranteed, they look and say, we need to praise God because of his loving kindness, because of his faithfulness, because of his loyalty to his people, to the people he has entered into a covenant with. So put all of that we've talked about together as the sovereign who says, I will give this to you. He says, I will guarantee it because I am true. What I say will happen and I am faithful and I am loyal. And as the, as the, as the, the sovereign king, as he looks and he says, if you do this, I guarantee that this will happen. If, I, as, if you confess your sins, I guarantee that I am faithful and I am just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As we understand covenant, as we understand how the, the sovereign, the strong agent works with the weaker, us, it brings this new dynamic that it's not just like, okay, I hope God's going to forgive me, or I hope that this is going to happen. If God and his promises and his under, our understanding of Scripture, as he works through it and he meets it out and he establishes it, we have this solid guarantee, not because of a hope that we think God's pretty cool, but rather we can have this solid hope that when the God of the universe says, I'm coming again, guess what? The guarantee is, I am coming again, because he is truth. Because what he has said is backed up by the guarantee that he is going to fulfill his promises. So we can enter in understanding. To me, this week has just been, it's been exciting to read through and understand these words. And to understand that when I read, you know, the little Bible promises book, or I read, you know, these things that God says he's going to do, it's not just, okay, if I do all these things and I work hard enough, maybe I'll grant God's blessing. But rather, God is, God is a gracious God who lavishes so much upon me that I don't deserve. And why is that? Because he's faithful. Because he's loyal to me. Even when I'm not loyal to him, he's still, a time, he's still loyal to me. He's not capricious. He's not, like, he's not finicky and fickle like I can be. If you're not nice to me, I don't know if I'm going to be nice to you back. God, yes, sure, there will be judgment. We'll talk about with the Noahic covenant how judgment isn't necessarily always just a mean thing, but it's often a, a gracious, it's a, it's a merciful act toward, toward people. Uh, this word, it demonstrates the veracity, the truthfulness of the individual and his overflowing faithfulness. As we look at God, he is faithful. He is true. And we can, we can have this confidence in him. 
Other words that are often associated with covenant, we see them here in Exodus uh, 34 as we were looking at them uh, earlier. You're in 117, but there was mercy, grace, (coughs) excuse me, patience, forbearance, often is is used. Um, And in those words, now I got to go through them all again. Sorry about that. Mercy and grace, patience. I'm thankful that the sovereign of the universe, that God is gracious. He is merciful to me. He is patient in those areas that he offers. And especially with, with the children of Israel. We look, we look all the time. Hey, am I the only one who's looked and said, I don't, I don't get God in Israel, man. I'd have wiped them off the map. How much longer? How, how much sooner? You know, they're complaining through, I just brought you out of Egypt and now you're, I just wipe you off and, and start over. But because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his patience, because of the covenants that he has entered into with Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, he enters into Abraham with Abraham and says, your seed is going to continue on. If he just looks at it and says, you know what, I'm done with Israel, let's wipe them out. Well, now he doesn't keep his covenant with Abraham. And so he's bound himself to that in his wisdom throughout eternity. He has entered into that covenant that he will keep. So his patience with people, wow, it's amazing. Even with us, as we enter into the relationship of salvation with Jesus Christ, the times we fail and yet his patience, because we've entered into a relationship with him. Christ is more about the relationship than just making sure all these little things are just perfect and in order. He knows that, he understands that we're going to fail. He wants a loyalty from us as he gives his loyalty, loyalty to us. So summarizing covenant, as we we move into the Noahic covenant for a few minutes, covenant is about relationship. It is about a relationship that God, especially biblical covenant, God has entered into with his people. Covenant is guaranteed by the stronger party. I cannot guarantee that I am entering into heaven. I mean, I, I'm, I've followed after what Christ has said, but it's his guarantee. It is his, it's Christ shed blood that guarantees, that is my guarantee, is my surety that my sins are forgiven. It's not anything I've done. The stronger party makes that, that guarantee. Covenant expects loyalty from both parties. When, when Moses and the children of Israel enter into covenant with God, they were expecting that if they did what, what God had said, that God would do what he would do, said, that he, he, would say, he had said. So there's, there is a loyalty that is expected from both sides. Again, fulfillment of obligations from the stronger demonstrates faithful, loyal love. As God fulfills his promises, his obligations that he has made through covenant, through promises, it demonstrates his faithfulness, his loyal love toward us. Fulfillment of obligations is cause for the weaker party to celebrate or to praise the covenant keeper. As we see, as we enter into these relationships with God, and as he keeps his covenants and as he keeps his promises, the response, just like the children of Israel, and just like we saw in 117, we are to praise God. So as we enter into a worship service, the opportunity we have to give praise to God is because throughout the week, he has kept his promises. He has been faithful to us. He has been gracious. 
He has been merciful to us despite our disloyalty. So we can come looking and saying, this is our opportunity to say thank you, to praise you because of who you are. It is not just a time where we just come and say, okay, this is just about us. Our worship time is a response back to our covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful, true, just God. Covenant-keeping is ideal with men, but it's actual with God. This, this statement this week, it's from Leon Morris. I think I might have it in the notes, but I don't have it up there. He said, we as, we as humans, when we enter into a covenant with each other, and, you know, an agreement, and we say, okay, we're going we're gonna to have this relationship. It is ideal. We look at marriage. Ideally, you enter into the covenant of marriage, a sacred bond, and ideally, it's always going to work out. But we know when it comes to two sinners living under the same roof, sadly, it does not always happen. But the ideal is that we keep the covenant. When it comes to God, covenant keeping is actual. When he says, when he makes the declaration, this is what I'm going to do. It is done. It will happen. It is not going to be changed. He's just not going to, when he makes the promises in John 10, that when you are saved, you are, you are held in my hand and I, we're not going to let you go. It is a promise. It is actual by God. It is not a, eh, okay, I, I think I'll just drop you off. He makes those promises. He keeps, he keeps that covenant. So we take those concepts of covenant. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. We'll start there. And I'm going to leave this. We're going to have this major cliffhanger for all of you and Daniel. Uh, sorry, but if you want to come over and join me, I'm not stealing you from pastor's class. That'll get me fired. No, it won't. Uh, but we're going to, we'll get into it a little bit this week with the Noahic covenant. Uh, and we'll finish it up next week in my class. But uh, take, this, take this idea of, of covenant, what we've just talked about as we enter into this understanding. Now, if you were going to, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, we actually have the first use of the word covenant in the scriptures. But as those who are in our class, you understand there's already been covenants that have been made, and we'll talk about that in a second. But verse 18 of chapter 6 of Genesis says, But this will I but with thee I will I establish my covenant. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife's uh, sons' wives with thee, and every living thing. And he goes through what we know about the story of Noah. But he, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. God is, God is going to enter into it. If you were going to describe the times of Noah, what, what would you say? What do you know about this time? Sin. A little bit of sin? To, complete, complete depravity. Complete, utter debauchery. Evil continually. It is not a, it's not a great time. I mean, we know that. We've, we, most of you looking around the room, you've taught that, you understand that. When you look at Genesis 6, that it came to, uh, it came to the point where there's, there's all this stuff happening. Uh, it's, just, it's wicked and evil. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was continually great in the earth, and the very imaginations of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. There wasn't even like this glimmer of hope. All optimism was basically crushed 
at this point. It, it got to the point where it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him. It wasn't this cosmic mistake. God's not looking at a cosmic mistake, but he's saying, because of what is happening here, there is sorrow, there is grief, and I'm going to bring, meet out, meet out judgment. So let me ask you this. Which of the following words would you use to describe the flood? If you had to choose, choose words there, what? Judgment? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those. It is. Now, we often, we've often taught that the flood is just God's what? Judgment. And is it God's judgment? Absolutely. When we look dispensationally through the scriptures, as we understand that man fell, man began to be governed by their conscience, as man governing by their conscience was falling further and further away from God, and they weren't following after the God pricking and working in their inner, their inner heart, there was judgment that was going to be that was going to come. That judgment was the flood. But the flood is all of that. The flood is destruction. The flood is judgment. But the flood is definitely grace. The flood is definitely God's mercy. The flood is definitely God's preservation. How, how does that all? How does that work into it? Noah. We, we get to a point. Remember in verse eight. He comes, but Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. God, God sees it in the midst of all this evil, continually wicked society. There's Noah. And he, he sparks God's eye. God looks and says, there, there are some. There's a few. There's eight who are, you know, even potentially just the one or two that are there. But the Noahic covenant was really instituted by God to preserve human beings from destruction. God understood, left to themselves, and what was happening. You look through, look through the, the way that is happening. Genesis 5 is really interesting. We'll talk about it in a second. But it's basically like a death chart. Okay, they lived this long. We, we often look and say, okay, it's just a chronology of, you know, how do we get from here to, to, to Moses? But think about, think about the story of the Bible. Genesis 1, creation. 2, you're still in the, the creation mode. Genesis 3, you have the fall. Genesis 4, you have the first murder that's going to take place. Genesis 5, you have all these people dying. Genesis 6, God's going to destroy the world. It's a little depressing. It's, it's a very much, it's a death chart that goes through uh, Genesis 5 saying this person died, this person died. Death was something new in the world. It wasn't something that, it was, it was becoming more common, but in the narrative, the story of Scripture, we vastly, we quickly move from Eden to death. And you leave mankind to themselves, they were going to utterly destroy themselves. And God understanding that and understanding where they were at and had to turn it around, he uses the judgment of the flood and he turns it into grace. Basically, the covenant is a pledge by God that humanity will not be annihilated before a covenant that he's already given, a promise that he's already made in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember when he, the fall happens? And when the fall happens... He makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He makes a guarantee, a covenant. Something is going to happen. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, 
and he, you shall bruise his heel. It's, it's looking forward to the one who is going to come from the seed of woman, who, yes, Satan is going to bite, Satan is going to strike, he is going to hurt, but in, in the hurting, in the crucifying of Jesus Christ, Christ is going to crush Satan. That was a guarantee made by the covenant-keeping God back in Eden that says this will happen. If God wipes all of humanity off of the face of the earth, destroys everybody, how can he fulfill that covenant that there is going to be a seed that's going to come through Adam and Eve? He can't. And so the, the Noahic covenant is actually a covenant of preservation, a preservation of humanity, of those individuals who are coming through the line of, of Adam and Eve, ultimately as, as we get to Jesus Christ. We see, we, we can look and say, well, man, it seems really harsh that there would be this destruction in order to bring about new life. But don't we see that? We see that in forestry. They'll go into a forest and they'll either clear cut the entire or they'll do a controlled burn to take out all of the old, old growth and the, the rabble and everything that's, that's doing harm to the forest. Why? So that new growth can come up and that a stronger, a stronger entity and forest can, can come through. So God is basically going to clear cut humanity down to the few who are finding grace, grace in his eyes. So why, why is this covenant necessary? In order to, to get to that point, quick, quick biblical review. So God as creator is the king of the universe. What does he do? He takes his kingdom. He says it's, he creates it. He says it's very good. And God made man, not madman. God is not a madman, but God made man in his image to rule over creation. Man's main task, Adam and Eve's main task was to rule over earth uh, for God's glory and while obeying his commands. We know that they fail at that. Man fails at that task to obey God and they act autonomously in their self-interest of their self-law. They do their own thing, sinning against their creator. We know that by the fall with Genesis 3, that occurs. As a result of the fall, the creation uh, is subject to the curse and death. All of creation is subject to and groans because of, because of that fall. Man's ability to rule over creation is now damaged. Adam and Eve are no longer having that, that ability to completely rule the way that God, God intended, neither do we. God promised, though, that coming seed of the woman who would reverse the curse and defeat the power behind the serpent, which was Satan. So we, we, we see all that laying out. The world then is unraveled in sin and wrapped, uh, sin has basically wrapped its tentacles around humanity. Look, and we, I reviewed this. Genesis 4, 8, Cain slays Abel. Genesis chapter 4, you have Lamech's brutality, where Lamech looks and says, all right, I've killed this person, this has happened. I basically dare anybody. Anybody who's going to come after me, I'll show you. I'll kill him 70 times over. And he's just a brutal, brutal person. And that's how society is unfolding. The roll call of death. The only person that's really interesting in the whole litany of death, right in the middle is Enoch, who walked with God. And what does he not experience? Death. He's no more. He's translated. He's gone. And it really does, I, I believe that's why it highlights not only Enoch in the middle, but walk, the importance of walking with God, even in the middle of wickedness and depravity and sinful debauchery, that you can still walk with God, just like Enoch did. But it highlights the fact that all around him was, was death. 
In the middle of all of that, we get to Genesis 6, where every intention is only evil, and it is continually evil. God looks at all of this. He gets to the point he's going to, he's going to basically destroy the world. So the Lord destroys the wicked. He destroys their world. I mean, it's his world, but the world that they are, have created, thinking they are so great and powerful and mighty. But he saves a remnant through the obedience of one man. And that's where we see Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah still had to be obedient. Noah still had to follow through. But God says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Noah. Because of the way that you have acted, the way that you have been. Now, this, it's, it's an it's a aspect in which Noah here is graciously living for God before he receives God's blessings. Not just, not just because God blessed him is Noah faithful. Noah is faithful in the middle of wickedness, never, never thinking that he's going to get some great blessing from God. In fact, when you look at Noah, do you remember the verse 9? It says that he was righteous. Uh, Noah was a just or righteous man and perfect in his generations. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, And the Lord uh, said to Noah, Come out of the ark, for I have seen your righteousness before me in this generation. Like what one author put, he said that righteousness often has the idea of being willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. And, and Noah did. I mean, he, he's creating this ark for his family, for others. He's willing to walk in a way to, to be righteous before God and others. He was considered blameless. That it's not, a, it's not a perfection, but he was growing toward maturity. Highlighting again, whether it's Enoch, whether it's Noah, in the midst of wickedness, we can live righteously. God's not calling us to perfection, but he is calling us to be continually, continually growing before him. So the ark is built and this catastrophic judgment of God is, is, is going to take place. Uh, but the narrative, the narrative of the flood, it really does testify God's power and freedom over his creation. God is in control. God understands what is going to happen. And it gets to the point where the catastrophic judgment could easily leave mankind uh, thinking life was worthless to God. Oh, if I got those backwards. No, that's Okay. Life was worthless to God, but his covenant and his command show otherwise. I might have another, do I have another blank in there that I don't have on there? Yeah, let me, let me read to you, Miss that one, sorry about that. Uh, the narrative of the flood testifies to God's power and freedom over his creation. It shows him to be a God who judges sin in deadly anger. He's, he's, he doesn't, God does not look lightly upon sin. He, he deals with it. The flood is not simply about the physical details, but also about the moral aspects of the world. It's cool to understand. I love going to the ark. I love reading the details, the scientific aspects, the, the different dynamics of it. But don't, don't go to the flood account and just say, this is just a scientific architectural treatise on how to build a really good boat that can survive a great storm. This is very much God dealing with the moral dynamic of the culture and how God deals with sin and how mankind, if righteous in the midst of wickedness, God blesses. 
and God works. It brings us to, you know, asking lots of questions. You know, if you're reading through this text for the first time, is this the end of humanity? What's going to be happening? What, what's going to, can men pursue their lives immorally and enjoy the pleasures of this world with reckless abandon and face no consequences? Can, can we do that? Can we even do that now? As we, we look at the story, is, is this life final or is, is it preparatory for something to come? We know a lot of those answers as we start wrapping our heads through them biblically. But when you're going through, is, is you put yourself in Noah's, Noah's case and his family. You get off the ark. There's eight of you and a bunch of animals. What's God going to do? Is this the end? I mean, if I, if I step out of line, is he going to kill me again? Am I next on his hit list? Is he just, you know, up there with the lightning rod waiting to zap me? And we, we can look and smile on this end and go, well, we know God's not like that. But at the point when Noah steps off the ark with his family, they don't know. All they know is, wow, God just wiped out humanity. He just obliterated his creation. How do I know that he's not going to do that to me? How do I know that he really considers me righteous and that I have found grace in his eyes? What promise do I have, God, that you're not going to wipe my family out if I'm Noah? And God is going to take that opportunity and enter into a covenant with Noah. He's going to walk into the Noahic covenant and he's going to demonstrate to Noah that, hey, Noah, life is valuable to me. Life is valuable to God. The Noahic covenant is going to highlight that. We're going to see that because he's going to deal with, if you take a human's life, your life is to be forfeited. If if he, he looks and says, it is valuable to me. Why? Because you're made in my image. And he says, mankind must protect life and not abuse life. And he he lays that out and the Noahic covenant becomes a promise and a guarantee of preservation. It is a, a guarantee by God that humanity is important. And even as we sit here today and we see the rainbows in the sky, knowing that this covenant is still for us, that God still holds your life, my life valuable, that he still has care and concern, whether aging and elderly or young and vital, God holds life valuable. The covenants start to unfold that. Next week in our class, we're going to continue on with that. For those of you in Daniel, you can enjoy Daniel and that'll be good.